I'm Matt Heiner. I own Heiner Outdoor Living, and I am a hardscaper. Okay, Matt, give us a little bit of context about yourself, how you got started in this industry, and kind of where you are now in your business. Can you set this up for our audience? Sure. So I started when I was 15 years old, just kind of like most people, just as a labor. I was working underneath my dad, who was a home builder, and they did all their landscaping in-house. And it was me and one other guy, and um, we would just spend all of our time uh, doing the fine grading and then doing all the installations to all these homes uh, of all the landscaping. I kind of got all my hands-on experience. Uh, my first introduction to the industry there, did that all through high school, through the summer, after school, kind of that kind of stuff uh, gave me insight into the hard work of what went into it. And then um, I would say uh, about when I was 20, I met my wife and needed to uh, get back to work and fell back on what I knew and started to work to learn, worked for, which was then uh, Brickman, now Brightview, uh, learned that I did not like the maintenance side of things, found out that uh, my slight allergy to <laughs> grass, beneficial to me to stay more in the installation side of things and hardscaping. And so I just kind of went down that track before I uh, worked there at Brickman for several years and then left there to um, left there really to take an opportunity to buy out a local company. And that was 06, 07, when um, the economy was overheating and ended up tanking. And, and rather than buying a company, I found myself unemployed, newlywed, and, and uh, with one and, uh, one and only unemployment check of $300. And I took that and used that to make a logo and some business cards and started my company, Heiner Outdoor Living. That was almost 13 years ago now. And I've been just grinding that out and learning along the way and making every mistake, just kind of failing my way to the top. Uh, what was it about this company that, that was making you decide that this was the route at the time that you wanted to go ahead and, and purchase this company? What was it about that company? I had that entrepreneurial bug since I can remember. Um, I was always doing little, uh, I, I, used to, I remember I, when I was a kid, I used to set up little sketch, uh, bring out my table and bring out my sketch pad and, and try and do, you know, draw landscapes and you know portraits of the the neighbor moms walking and um so i've always had the entrepreneurial bug but uh, when this guy approached me he basically told me matt i'm trying to retire and find a way out of this business and i've been doing this for 12 years how would you like to come and work for me and and buy this business from me so i can get out and i thought that was a, a great opportunity to kind of feed into ultimately what i was wanting to do but uh, eventually, but didn't know how I was going to get started. So I quit my job at Brickman and, and went to work for this gentleman. And it just really kind of didn't work out rather than, uh, I think I worked for him for less than uh, eight months before I found myself just kind of too bored to, to do anything. I, I'm not the type that can sit still for very long. Taking that moment in time when this, this economy has gone down, what made you buy into the fact of making your own business? Because that can be an extremely difficult thing to do, uh, especially at this moment in time when you have uh, when you're married uh, and you know there's the economy's down. That's a difficult time to decide that you are going to start a business. What was the process behind that? That's tough, man. I because I I mean ultimately, if I'm I'm being real honest, I felt like a failure. You know, I, I had convinced my wife that it was a good idea to leave my 
corporate job where I was on salary. The seasonality of things was taken out of the equation. Winters wasn't going to be a problem. And I had health insurance and all that kind of stuff working for the big company and then going to this small guy uh, and then ultimately finding myself, you know, what didn't work out. I had to look at her and have an honest conversation with myself and said, all right, well, if I'm going to be in this situation again, I'm going to at least be a hundred percent in control. And thankfully at the time she was, um, she was working for the credit union. So she was a member service representative, kind of a the bank teller job. And so we were living off her $12 an hour, uh, uh, wage and income. And we turned that into, uh, you know, so we just paid all of our minimum bills and I just took the $300 and, and just kind of went for it. So, um, I did everything I could think of to market myself back then. Craigslist was still a thing. So I set up a couple of Craigslist ads and um, I even donated my time to a local supplier to help them set up for their home and garden show booth in exchange to pass out business cards. And so I had a lot of time back then. So that's what I did. I, I donated my time that week, helped them set up their booth and, and kind of marketed myself that way. That's super smart. And getting into that, did you have a previously established relationship with this uh, place? Or was this something that you started the business, approached them, told them and said that you would donate your time for that? Well, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I had that relationship because I'd been going in and buying materials for years at that point. So we've, we've had that, that friendship. And uh, my friend was kind of the the manager at the time, and he was in charge of building the booth. And I said, all right on. And, and they kind of had a a reputation of leaning on contractors to kind of help them set that up. And, and so I was talking to him and he's like, Hey, do you want to be the guy to help us set it up this year? And I said, really, you'd, you'd let me do that and help you. And Stan, he's like, yeah, sure. Come on, come and do it. And so that's just kind of how that happened. You know, just having those relationships. And, um, you know, I would say on that premise today, like, um, you know, that's become our number one, uh, core value here at uh, Heiner Outdoor Living, which is build positive win-win relationships. And that goes for uh, with your vendors, your clients, your coworkers, your community, and anybody that we come in contact with. That's that's the number one core value that I lean on today. And I believe that's what's gotten me where I am. Matt, what was growth like in your business during that initial startup time uh, in, in terms of as the economy is tanking uh, and then eventually on its upswing, because because we really haven't experienced an economy like that since that moment in time. And a lot of people would say that we're due for some sort of market downturn and, you know, just just preparing people for that. What was your growth like during that time when especially when you're starting up during a, a market downturn? I looked at it as an advantage. I figured I don't have any overhead. Um, it's just me. I could probably, you know, use that to just sell myself. And, and I, I also told myself, look, if I can make it work in this economy, I can make it work in any economy. Um, you know, it, it's definitely a fluid process. It's a lot easier to kind of scale back when it's just yourself. Now that I've got a team and 15 employees and families and, and that responsibility, I probably, you know, it's not as easy just to scale back because I take their livelihoods very very seriously too, because, you know, they're part of my family and uh, I want to make sure that we're all taken care of and that we're stronger together. So you were, you were working at a company just as the, uh, the market went down. 
what kind of lesson did you learn from that in, in seeing that business sort of uh, be affected by this? And especially that deal that you uh, w- had worked out that you would eventually take over this company and it, it didn't happen. Did you take anything away from, uh, you know, being able to apply to your business now about navigating a, a, a time through uh, a market downturn in general? No, uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I probably subconsciously I did. Uh, just looking at that, like, <clears throat> I knew I didn't like, I guess it, the way that he approached things was it was pretty common to put everybody on what we call job attached unemployment. And that just didn't sit well with me. Like, I've, I just like to stay busy. And so I, I took some of those things and adapted a different culture to how I approach things. And I try and just keep it guys busy doing, you know, that's why we lean on the hardscapes in the wintertime. Cause that's, it's a little bit easier here in Colorado where we stay relatively dry. We don't get buried in snow. So if it gets super cold, we can go home, but we can still heat the, the ground with blankets and ground heaters. If we, if we really need to get creative to keep going. But um, for the most part, you know, I've, I've just tried to keep my core guys busy and, and that allows us to, um, tried to always keep that in mind, you know, just to keep us busy. Mm-hmm. And and Matt, what really drew me to you, uh, especially on your Instagram, because it's such a visual channel is your designs and uh, your design work and your incorporation of so many different features, including water features, which I'm sure we'll get talking about later. But where does this come from? Like where, where did you get this eye for design and, and implementing this into your business? That's a great question. I, I would definitely say there's, it's probably 10% talent and 90% skill. It's uh, design is something that I obsess over, but then at the same time, I don't just slam out my designs. It's especially when it's one that's really pulling at my, my creative strings. Like I'll, I'll go back and forth for, for days, just trying to master plan out a backyard just cause I want it to be as perfect as possible. But, um, you know, I've, I've, I've built some techniques, but it's not, you know, I'll spend hours just sc- scrolling through a bunch of really talented designers out there on Instagram and saving certain things that I can come back to and implement little pieces in into my projects. So there's a lot of good guys out there, but uh, no formal training, really just kind of always looking at what worked and you know, I've spent hours on the internet just scouring, just saving other plans and just looking at what made those successful. I have bought textbooks and read those on my own, but formal training in a, in a classroom going to school was not the path for me. I did not do very well in uh, going the college route. So uh, I've always just been kind of a jump in, figure it out type of guy. And, and that's that's worked well for me. So Matt, where does design work fit into your business along the timeline? Did you start your business, know that you wanted to incorporate designs uh, with customers right away? Uh, You know, I I know some guys, you know, hop into it and just try to do as much work as possible. Uh, You know, napkin hand sketches as much as possible. Don't really get into the designs, the 3D designs and everything like that. When did you start to implement that into your business? I would say from the very beginning, uh, and, and and not very intentionally, consciously just started putting a lot more time and effort into design. I I knew very early on that this is a passion career for me. This is not something that this is not just a way for me to make money. This is you know, I 
I want to be proud of the jobs that we do at the end of the day. And if it's not something that I'm wanting to pull my phone out and just be excited about, then I lose interest really quickly. And so uh, what keeps me engaged is just challenging myself and trying to just love that moment of guy uh, of, of clients being able to just be like, wow, how did you even create this? Like, where, how did you even think this up? And, and just, it's just fun for me. You know, I really just have a good time doing it. And so it's, I'm always in competition with myself and just trying to be better than yesterday. And that's kind of just the mantra that I live by. So Matt, this might be a little bit of a tricky question with a tricky answer and something that's very subjective, but what makes a good design in, in your eyes, what stands out when you're going through Instagram or when you're uh, looking at other guys work, what, what really, makes your eye drawn to something and say, wow, that is a good design. What, what makes that? I would say with any, any design, it's a, it starts with the lines, you know, no acute angles, really solid form with strong shapes and, and relationships with those. If, uh, if you're not getting that figured out, there's gotta be a good, um, use of space, you know, and you gotta make sure that if you're going more modern, that the, you know, that you've got straight lines that are working well with each other. If you're going curvilinear, you gotta, you know, you gotta have well-balanced curves that, uh, that, you know, are smooth and pleasing to the eye. It's hard for me to really articulate, you know, I, I, there's, it's just something that when I see something, I I think good photography really helps add to that as well. Um, You know, although I, I can tell what's going to be a nice design if it isn't, uh, good photography, but that's certainly, you know, the icing on the cake too. But um, yeah, it, it, man, that is a really tough question to answer because there's so many, you could almost take that any direction. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into kind of your sales process or at least when, uh, uh, what what you're doing to market your business right now, what happens when leads come into your business? Let's get into all this whole situation with your business, starting with Obviously, since you started your business, you started getting leads uh, one way. And I, I really love the idea that you approached your supplier and, and offered your time in order to uh, get in front of customers through them. Uh, but what about nowadays? Where are your leads coming from nowadays? And what are you intentionally spending money on to get more leads into your business, if any? Still best marketing is, is word of mouth. Marketing, as far as what we spend money on, I've got, you know, SEO. I work with a company that does, you know, search engine optimization for the website. They help with a few like retargeting ads on Facebook. So if they go to the website, you know, they'll, you know, they'll see us pop up on Google ads and, and Facebook pixels and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we've, I, I do spend a, a little bit targeting people with, uh, with Instagram just to kind of, you know, build, you know, now that I've got, a little bit of a following. I think that helps build a, some credibility around, um, you know, what, what we're capable of. Uh, it wasn't always that way, you know, uh, but it, it, word of mouth, like always just clean trucks, you know, and, and just being creative and, and putting off a professional image everywhere we go. You know, we've got logos on our trucks, logos on uh, everything. And then just being a member of the community has, has helped too. Have you noticed that SEO strategy has paid off with the company that you've gone with and uh, in those uh, retargeting ads? Have you noticed a difference in the leads that that's bringing in? Yeah, that it definitely brings in more volume. You, the difference is, is it doesn't bring as quality of leads. I, 
you know, you can definitely pick apart your website and make sure that, that you're putting your best step forward and that you're trying to pre-qualify people as much as possible with your website. But even then you still got to jump on the phone call, uh, jump on the phone and have a honest conversation. It's a lot of wasted time. If you're just getting their name and running straight out to their house. I like to have people send us photos first and foremost of their house. If it's a, a you know, a, a lead off the street, I like to call it. Um, that just lets me see what they're seeing. Uh, we get some kickback. People are like, no, I just need you to come out here. Well, then, um, then you know what? We just kind of throw down a like a on-site fee of, you know, 150 bucks just to come out and, and see your property. But if you send us pictures, we can start the free normally if they're that concerned with price it's not going to work out anyways um <clears throat> but i would say yeah seo does work and it does make the phone ring you just got to spend a lot you got to spend some time investing in yourself and practicing uh the art of pre you know phone skills and pre-qualifying on the phone that's going to save you hours and hours and hours of of driving out to tire kickers and bad leads and and people that will ultimately going to waste your time and never be your customer. Definitely. And I, we talk about this on the podcast, pre, pre, uh, pre-qualification often here. And I like to get our guests uh, kind of what they do exactly. You talked about asking for a photo, uh, which is, which is awesome, especially uh, when these are leads coming in from a website, not necessarily word of mouth that they've seen your work before. Uh, and, and to pick their brain, what, what other questions are you asking them? Or do you have a, a minimum uh, that you're telling them that you this is your project minimum? Does this fit your budget? Like what what other information are you getting out of them or are you telling them? Yeah, so I kind of have a, a process on the phone. I like to spend a minimum of 10 to 15 minutes just kind of in the in the realm of pain or pleasure, basically why I want to get to the root of why they're calling me in the first place. Is it because they want to just have a nice place? You know, you know, are they tired of mowing the grass? What what is that point that, you know, what what is the motivation to calling me? Like, why, you know, is it a new home and they just need to get the uh, HOA minimums done? All right, great. I know that this is going to be a short conversation and we probably won't be a good fit. Um, But are they calling me because they really want to turn their backyard into to more of like a, a resort style space? Then, all right, awesome. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I know I, I try and get them to tell me more of how they want to use the space as opposed to, you know, um, spending more time of, well, tell me what features you would like. You know, I, you know, I don't care if they want a fire pit or this, that, or the other, I, I'm trying to build them a lifestyle and, you know, they're coming to me because they don't know how to get there. And so I try and establish myself as an authority and as the designer from the very beginning to, to show that they do need me, they do need my services and and they're not going to be able to get that lifestyle without working with a competent, talented designer to, you know, put that vision together. And, and I try and put a lot of emphasis on that is the most important part of this process is to, um, get that vision dialed in and that we are going to spend a lot of time doing that and that there is a fee that is attached with that. And so a lot of the people that come to us now kind of expect it, but a lot of, a lot of the times you have to educate these people that, you know, that it does take time, you know, I, but if you're giving me uh, a general idea of what you're looking for, I won't just jump into, well, that's going to be uh, this price. I like to do what I call bracketing. You know, I'm going to give them, you know, 
I'm going to tell them, look, you know, everything that you just told me, Mike, that's, that sounds like a great project. That's something we can do. You know, I can make this look really nice. Like it's something that you would see right out of a magazine and something that we could go submit to awards. And Mike, we could spend, we could go crazy. We could have a field day. We could be like at $150,000, $200,000 back there. And that might not be what you're after or what you're even wanting to spend or could spend, but you might be thinking on the low end, you know, we could be doing something around this for 50 to $60,000, you know, which conversation are we having? Matt, what's your ideal project for your business right now in, in the way it stands? And this, you know, this could be uh, your ideal project in terms of something that you love doing, love designing, love building, or your ideal project in terms of this is the most profitable for your business to take on. What does that ideal project look like in your business? That's a great question. So, you know, we've got, you know, I've kind of got, I'm in a unique position now to where when I was doing hundred percent of the selling and that kind of, uh, and designing, I kind of had my sweet spot and I still have the sweet spot on where I know that I thrive and I can come in and, and really design and get a slam dunk type of deal. Uh, but now I've got my brother in a, um, in a sales position for just our water features and he's finding his own sweet spot. And then I've got another designer who's finding her sweet spot. So it's really been nice as a company, we can diversify a little bit, help more of a larger range of demographic. And, and, you know, when leads come in, we can divvy them up uh, like appropriately to uh, help more people. So it, it's kind of a, a, hard question to answer because it depends on what type of lead and what type of projects it's going to be. So getting into that, that's really interesting because now you've grown a business to the point where you can kind of take a step back and, and you're not necessarily the, we spoke about this just before the interview, but the technician in the business, you're more of a business owner. So getting into talking about how, uh, uh, you know, other people's sweet spots kind of become, uh, an influence, so to speak, in your business. How hard is it? How hard is that for you to uh, kind of take a step back in your business and let other people not necessarily steer the direction of or influence your business, but to kind of give that control over to somebody else in your business? Because that, that's what I find the, the most difficult thing as a business owner, entrepreneur, whatever you might want to call it, that 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 relinquishing of control, how difficult was that for you? What did that look like? And, and, and in what timeline did you do that with your business? Oh, that's a great question. I would say, first and foremost, don't think of it as a switch. Think of it as a throttle because it's not like you wake up someday and be like, all right, you guys have control. So I'll see you later. Um, it's, it's kind of like you're on the job site and then you give them more and more responsibility and then you start slowly taking a step back day by day. So in the beginning, you're out there all day, every day, like to get your bids done, you're working to, at nine o'clock at night when the family's, everybody else is in bed and you're up burning the midnight oil, just trying to get bids out. Yeah, but then you're there with the crew the entire time. And so then it starts with, for me, it started with, all right, guys, I'm going to go do these bids during the day, make sure they're lined out. Good. Okay. And then I'll leave for a couple hours, come back, make sure they're still heading in the right direction until you get somebody that can kind of step up and establish themselves as competent to, that you can train or mold into that form and role. Eventually it grows into, you know, just having the numbers. I am 
you know, one thing that you don't see on Instagram or any of that kind of stuff is I'm constantly looking at spreadsheets and, and numbers of my company. So I'm, I'm pretty fanatic about job costing and looking at all of the jobs that we're doing and man hours and uh, material budgets and looking at those things and keeping the organization and, and then spending time with my guys training them so that they know that, Hey, this is a, uh, with my four man crew, we have this many days to complete it. And so, and then just looking at that and then now I can just text them or remind them, Hey, you know, you got this long to go. And then just making it a game within a game saying, all right, you know, this is a five, you know, this is a six day job. Uh, and then they come to me now and say, all right, we're going to get this done in five. And so, uh, but doing that without sacrificing the quality. Yeah, actually, we just recently had Mark Bradley of uh, LMN on the podcast and he talked about that and, and the, the, you know, job costing and making it kind of a, a game for your employees to, uh, you know, finish a job early almost. And he, he talked about a bonus structure around doing that and the benefits of doing a bonus structure. Do you have anything like this set up in your business at all? We do. Yep. So every Tuesday at 10, we, uh, we have our company meeting where we all come together, um, foremen come in once a month because I, you know, unless I feel like things are going bad and we need to rope them back in and, and keep them, keep their eye on the target. Um, then I like to just keep them uninterrupted on the field. But every week we sit down with our office manager, all the salespeople. Um, and then we sit down, we go over all of our numbers and our job costing and our sales leads and that kind of stuff. And, and we make sure that we're heading in the right direction. So we'll, we'll move the progression of the percentage of completion on all these jobs. And we'll know if we're going to be making money before we're done. Or if we're heading south, what can we do to save it? You know, we can get creative and, you know, do we have an estimation error? Can we correct that right now before we make the same mistake twice? Always just trying to get better than yesterday. So, um, but uh, as far as getting the guys, uh, they do have a bonus structure. If they hit their minimums on uh, cumulative uh, gross profits on the jobs that they complete, then, then they get a bonus every quarter. Uh, and then a big bonus at the end of the year if, if they hit that too. Um, so, you know, that keeps them pretty motivated to, to make sure that they're, uh, you know, keeping the cash flow good. But then we have a big board that puts all those totals too, so they can see. So we, you know, it's just kind of, kind of breeding some peer pressure so they can look at that and can be like, oh, well his crew is, you know, they're under a hundred hours, uh, cumulative for the year and I'm over. That means I need to pick it up, you know, and they just know that it's possible and, uh, it taps into that competitive spirit that that's pretty common at our office here too. That's awesome. And, and kind of getting into that, uh, with your different crews, do you have ever have more than one crew on one project? Cause I know you, you guys do some pretty intricate, uh, water features along with patios and, and all these different features. Do you ever have more than one crew on one project? Like, do you have crews that specialize in certain things such as water features or hardscapes? How does that work in your business? Yeah, I, I do. And especially on these bigger ones, it seems like we might team up and put two crews on one, but I definitely have some crews that, you know, I've got one that in particular that does all my super high-end stuff. He's been with me. Uh, he's almost one of my longest standing employees. He's been with me eight years and, and I've given him full reins with these building these waterfalls and these water features. He's just taken, he's just blossoming. And it's so fun for me to just be able to build this company and set him up for complete 
success because he's 100% in his element, just being able to place these rocks. I get such great compliments and feedback from my clients of how fun it is for them to sit back and watch this guy just work his magic. He's, he's truly an artist. And um, for me to be able to have the passion that I do and to be able to design these large spaces and then I can just turn it over to him and he can just execute this. We've got this team, you know, it's, it's a dual effort at this point, you know, like he and I feed off of each other and he'll bring ideas. Hey, Matt, I got this idea. You should put this into a design and I'll go, Oh, that's awesome. And so I'll do that and I'll put it into a design and he'll get to build it or, and, I think he appreciates how I've learned to let go and trust him and give him the stage so he can go perform. And I think that's a very important element in growing a, growing a successful business is being able to let go and paint a dream and, and, and share a dream big enough so that your, your team can, uh, uh, their dream can fit inside of that. So Matt, where do you find these guys? Because uh, obviously the big uh, topic in this industry is the labor shortage, not being able to find good workers, whatever it may be. But where do you find guys like that? Or at, or at least recruit in, where, where do you find your employees? Uh, do you have any strategies around that? You just got to keep playing the same note over and over and over. It's going to be a constant, never ending process. Um, and when you get a good one, you got to, treat them well and train them well enough so they can leave, but treat them good enough so they don't want to. Um, but yeah, it's a numbers game, just like sales. You got to approach finding these guys, knowing that you're going to have to hire 20, 30, 40 guys before you get one that sticks for the long term. And, uh, I also believe it starts with your core values. You know, you got to really have a solid understanding of who you are, what you stand for, and then have that backed up with a, a solid mission mission statement. You know, where are you going? Why are people going to want to join your company? You know, are, are, are they coming to just push wheelbarrows for the summer? Because you're not going to get good guys to want to stick around for very long. Um, you know, you got to attract people because you're, you know, you're they're doing something bigger than just building a backyard. They're doing something bigger than just pushing wheelbarrows. That's why I created the Yardist. The Yardist is something that, you know, just something that we can all be proud of that, you know, we aren't just a landscaper. We are, or, you know, we're artists and we're able to exercise that creativity within, within our company. And, and I think that's, that's been some of the keys to finding some of these guys and then just trading them really well. And then once you get a couple of good ones, I lean on them. You know, I, I would say like, I've straight up gone to them and be like, all right, I give up you're in charge. You've built your crew. Now you want this to work. You find your guys. And I've thrown up my hands before in the past and they did it. You know, once I lit a fire under their ass and said, look, we're going to fail together. If we can't find guys, they went out, they know they're in more, uh, they're in a closer circle with more of the laborers than, than you are as an owner. And so I would say it's a lot easier for them to find guys that they're going to bring in because they're now putting their reputation on the line. So, you know, if you've got a good guy, they don't want to bring in a guy that's going to make them look bad. And so they're going to find somebody and if they out really fast. Um, and so that's, that's probably the, where I've had the best success. Um, as of late, I've been having some success with Instagram, you know, and, and that's, that's relative because it's still a numbers game. I'm, I've still had some guys come and go, but that's kind of the game that, that, that you play when you're hiring. And it seems like you've built this brand that definitely plays into attracting 
these people into your company, like you mentioned with Instagram there, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, uh, being active in your community, all of this is kind of like a long-term strategy, I I would think, in terms of creating a brand that attracts people, both customers and people that want to work for you. Exactly. Yeah. uh, Play the long game. That's our second core value. And, um, and yeah, I've, I've always, you know, been trying to build that brand. And, and I would say, as long as it plays into kind of our mission, which is just inspiring life outside, then it's something that we're going after. That's what we, that's ultimately at the end of the day, what we're trying to do. And, and I love what you said about the artists there and, uh, you know, these landscapers, hardscapers, whatever it might be, are artists and they're, they're bringing something together for this client that is really a luxury service. These are not needs, these are wants. And because of that, we need to be charging like it is a luxury service because in order to keep good employees, we need to be able to afford the good employees and to uh, nurture these employees. Um, and yeah, can you talk a little bit more about uh, about the artist, what you're doing with that online and how that kind of plays into the long game with what you're doing with uh, your business. Sure. Yeah. The, the yardist actually, I didn't know what I was doing when I started that. Uh, the yardist account really started as just a place where I could go kind of geek out with the landscape things that I liked. I didn't even understand what I was setting myself up for when I, when I created that account until like all of a sudden I started getting followers and started building online relationships for the first time. And, and not just like, like weird DM DM. I mean, literally other designers whom I look at their stuff and I go, wow, you built some amazing stuff. And, you know, to the point where I've given referrals to people outside of, you know, my state and, vice versa and people that I can collaborate with and um, how it played into the overall brand. I didn't even know what I did when I started it. It's just kind of evolved. And, and it's, so I don't know if it was all on purpose, but it's playing into the overall deal because I, I feel like people have a much easier time following a person as they do to this no name brand, which is like uh, our company. The artist, they can see my face, they can hear my voice, they can kind of get an understanding of knowing who I am, what I'm about, what I stand for, and people do business with people that they know, like, and trust, and it's really just kind of um, given me credibility, and people, you know, Instagram in general is kind of more of the, the, the artist and the creative person's platform, I would say, and so the, the general users that are on there kind of have a higher appreciation than the average uh, person uh, for creativity. And um, I've just gotten a lot of success off of, you know, people just reaching out and saying, Hey, you know, we live in the area. And, and I'm amazed at how many people saying, Hey, I live in New York. You know, I know you're in Colorado, but would you do something out here? And it's like, uh, I mean, no, I can't. I mean, I, I guess I could, but uh, you know, thankfully we stay busy enough locally, but, uh, it's, it's crazy world that, that this has just opened me up to. Is there ever a future where you do, uh, and you are able to expand into other territories or at least do, uh, you know, a project or two here and there? You know, I've considered it maybe making at least, a, a traveling water feature team. Cause I would say that's our strongest niche of what we do is, is building these quality, you know, natural looking water features. And, and that's a craft in itself that you can't, that's, 
you know, it's not a, a trade st tool like uh, a trade like electrician or plumber. You can't just go to a school, get a certification, and then all of a sudden you're building water features. It's a craft and a, and a skill that has to be learned and practiced. And so I've thought of maybe making a, a traveling team that, you know, we can go in and just build the water feature and all these other guys can just build the landscape around it. Um, you know, I've even considered just opening up a, a, a more serious digital online uh, design agency. Um, but then also I've got our retail store that I've considered, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually in the process of, of getting that store online so I can get uh, a few key pieces of, of stuff that we use regularly that we can start selling online. So that's, you know, where my brain and, and some of the side things that I'm working on are, are at right now. What prompted the creation of this store? Where did this idea come from? And, and what, did, what is it going to, what is your vi vision, I guess? And what is this going to snowball into eventually? Oh, sure. So the store wasn't even a thought in my mind. When we moved into our current office space, we moved in here and our landlord who also owned um, the, the material yard that we're sharing a uh, property with, they sell a bunch of the sand, gravel, mulch, pavers, uh, stone, all the hardscape materials that we buy everything from. They also sold water feature parts. And he said, Matt, I, I need to get rid of the water feature parts. I know nothing about this. All this stuff is just collecting dust on my shelves. If you move into this, this, this house that we're now turned and remodeled into our office and retail store, would you mind taking this side and opening that up for the public? And I said, uh, sure. I know nothing about retail. I've never done it before. Uh, but we just kind of jumped into it. And it's kind of been this side part of the business that it's brought in leads. It's definitely helped us build some credibility around water features because uh, it started just selling pumps and water treatments and kits. And we started selling koi fish and uh, aquatic plants. And then after three years of it, really not doing much except for being more of a nuisance. Last winter, we just kind of had a, a conversation as a team. We said, all right, we either shut this down or we go all in. And we really just decided to go all in. So I brought in some lines of barbecues, uh, some patio furniture, artificial turf, and really just trying to make it more of a outdoor living uh, super center, uh, superstore where people can kind of come in and make it more of a destination place where people can come in, get a piece of that lifestyle to where they don't necessarily have to hire us to spend, you know, dollars $80,000, $100,000 remodeling their backyard. They can come in and just buy some gardening tools and a, and a dining set. And now they're, you know, classing up and, and getting into their backyard and using that space more than they would have it had they not. So, uh, you know, it's all feeding into that mission of inspiring life outside. And if we can do that through this retail store, then, Hey, that's, that's awesome. I, I'm excited to, to, to be a part of that. We were talking about leads coming into your business, how you pre-qualify them now getting into the meeting with these customers. How about this? How, like, how do you know what to ask them? How do you know what you're going to include in their design? Whether it's a water feature, a water feature that they can go swimming in, uh, a, a hardscape patio, you know, where, where do you start with them? Oh, it's, it's certainly a dichotomy. There's no one size fits all. It's, you got to have some, some social intelligence to know to know your client and your audience and who you're working with. And, and, you know, there's, there's 
some types of clients where you can really get creative and push the boundaries with. And there's some types of clients where when they say this is what they want, that's the lines that they're drawing. Don't, don't draw outside the lines. Yeah. You know, that's the box. They don't draw outside the box or whatever. Um, and so you really, it starts with knowing and, and kind of having this intelligence of who you're dealing with. And once you have an understanding of who you're dealing with, then you can kind of ask questions of, you know, I'll ask open ended questions and I'll ask questions like a good one is, you know, since, um, you know, Hey, when you're entertaining and, and you're having friends over, what would you say is the, you know, the average size party, you know, are you hosting six to eight people or are you throwing big ragers of 80 to hundred people? So open-ended questions like that are going to tell me, do I need a, a 400 square foot patio or do I need a 1200 square foot patio? And so that's going to give me insight into what I'm designing with and whatnot. Um, I always try and put some homework on them and see if they can't collect up some inspiration photos of what they like or don't like because uh, a photo says a thousand words. And so, you know, and, you know, if you can sit down and keep control of that conversation and just look at some of the work that you've done or, or if they don't have those photos and be like, all right, fire pit, you know, we, you know, here's a bunch of different options. You know, we can do something a little bit more modern. You know, ultimately, I like to make sure that we're complementing the architecture of the home. So it looks more of like an extension to what uh, what they've already got. And that's what's going to give it that seamless, um, that more polished professional look as opposed to just putting your stamp on something. Definitely. So when it comes to creating that design uh, and you're presenting it to the customer, do you have them come into the shop? Do you have them come in there and be able to present it to them? Do you go meet them at their place and present it to them? Uh, how does that eventually work? First, I would say it's a very important charge for the design. You know, that's going to make sure that they have some skin in the game. I don't care if you're just starting out or you've been in this a long time your time has value and your ideas and your expertise have value with whatever you're comfortable. I don't care if you're charging them 50 bucks, just get comfortable with that exchange of currency and just getting them to have some skin into the game. Because I can't tell you how many designs I gave away for free to where I spent hours drawing it up only for them to blow me off and never even see the design that I created for them because they just didn't take it seriously. And so, um, once we've collected the money up front, 100% for the design, then I'll go and I'll put that together and I'll, you know, I'll, you know, whether I'm going 2D or 3D, I think that depends on how uh, complex the, you know, the project is going to be. If it's just a landscape job or just a simple patio, you know, I might just stick with 2D. But if once we start getting a lot of moving parts in, I, I don't even like to give them options anymore. You know, 3D sells and I've, I've found that, hundred percent. And if, and it doesn't just sell, it really gets an emotional attachment to that space and it really opens up the budget wide open. Um, and so when that presentation is ready, we invite them to our shop and I don't know, you know, like I mentioned earlier, our shop is located in the middle of our stucco, our stone yard. So, you know, when they come to our office, our, our design center, we'll show them the design and then we've got a golf cart. And so we can literally go right around the, uh, you know, the CNC sand and stone, go tag boulders or look at samples or look at pavers. And we can literally just have it all right there, kind of a one-stop one shop. But I've really put a lot of emphasis into 
kind of uh, trying to create an experience around um, what we're doing. Yeah, that that's incredible. And uh, once that customer is ready to go ahead with your design, what are your payment structures like? Do you, uh, do you have does it vary from job to job, or do you have a set predetermined amount that you want up front to book the job, and then uh, payment structures throughout the job? What does that look like? I would say typically it's twenty percent to get on the schedule, forty percent when we show up, and forty percent when we're all done. That would be for a tip, like an average size job, anywhere between twenty thousand and eighty thousand. I would say anything more than that, I might lower the deposit a little bit and then break up the uh, just a little bit more, um, just so I can manage cash flow a little bit. The last thing I want to do is be sitting on forty percent at the end of a two hundred thousand dollar job, just biting my fingernails, hoping that they are going to pay. I'm going to set. I, that's a big no, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set like a milestone that we can see. So like after patio completion, you know, let's do another 40% uh, progress payment. So that way you can kind of do that. And I would say after, and, and I might even add just, you know, for the business side of things, either after or a certain date in case, like, you know, there's certain hiccups with weather or material hold up, you still have bills to pay. And so you got to cover yourself and just say, and just give yourself a, a, a reasonable time. If you think it's going to take you three weeks, maybe give yourself four weeks in that uh, payment schedule to get to collect that payment. Anything smaller than that, I'm, we're going 50-50. When it comes to payments, this is typically an answer to this next question, but it doesn't need to be. It can be anything to do with on-site or growing your business. It can have to do with payments as well. But do you have a horror story from your business, from growing your business to where you are now that you'd want to share with our audience? And the reason why I ask is uh, to, it, it really helps our, uh, it, it really any business owner understand the risks involved in, in owning and operating a business or to even put in systems in place to help prevent that to them from happening in the future. Any horror story that you'd want to share with our audience? Oh man, I, uh, man, we, we could have eight parts to this uh, interview with sharing all the horror <laughs> stories. Uh, they're normal. Let's start with that. If, if people don't have a horror story, they're uh, either don't own a business or they are can't be honest with you. Um, I would say we all have them. Uh, and I would say probably my biggest horror story was one of the most recent, uh, just a, a couple of years ago. We had signed a really big commercial uh, water feature job. And when we were interviewing for the job, they, you know, part of why they were considering us was if we had schedule availability to start within a few weeks. And this was, uh, I, th I think it was around $150,000 water feature job. It was a big stream that was going to go in, in between a bunch of, um, you know, high-end uh, condominiums. And uh, so I priced it accordingly, you know, to what I needed to, to make and to do a good job. And I got the signed contract and then I got uh, the deposit because I said, all right, I need, I need my, uh, deposit. And so they, they cut a check for the $30,000 and I used that, bought all the materials. And I thought that we were going to be starting in a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of weeks turned into hey, we need a couple more weeks. Okay. So scrambled and I filled the schedule for a couple more weeks. Well, a couple more weeks went by and you know, that turned into, oh, well, we need three more weeks, you know, uh, okay. All right. Well, you know, th this process started in March. Uh, what was it? It was started in March and they wanted to start in April. Uh, 
And they, they kept giving me the runaround every two, three weeks until it was about August. And so all summer long, I was basically just reacting and I was scrambling all summer long, like, you know, cause this project was going to take me and my team the better part of eight weeks to complete, eh, probably 10 weeks, at least 10 weeks to complete. And so that was a huge commitment out of our schedule. And when other people were calling for work in the, frankly, the busiest time of the year, I kept saying, sorry, we're, we're booked up two, three months right now. And people would be like, oh, we need somebody to do it sooner. And so I, I missed out, like I missed out on a lot of opportunities and come August, they're like, ah, we're going to, you know, let's just push this back to, to fall, you know, to, uh, to, you know, to, uh, November. I was like, really? Like, I've been scrambling all year. And so I've, I'm starting to get pretty irritated at this point and, and reacting. And just, if you can imagine just trying to fill your schedule for only two weeks, I like, so I'm narrowing the types of projects I can now take on and I've got guys and I'm moving around. So nothing we were doing that year was profitable. Anyways, long story short, we get to the fall and then they're now they're telling me, sorry, Matt, we're just going to postpone this to next spring. And I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, we just got done with our construction meeting. We're going to, I'm like, all right. And then two days before Christmas, I got an email, just a, an email with please see attached. They sent me a, a letter just canceling the contract altogether. And then they went with somebody else. And I found my, and that, and that winter, you know, it was because then it was October. Cause at that point I was banking on the fact that, all right, this, this is now going in a winter. I'm going to just use this. This is a big job. Maybe we can at least finish the year strong. You know, now that they postponed it till spring, I didn't have any leads. I didn't have any work. I had now built up a whole bunch of debt because I was scrambling all year to just try and keep the schedule. Nothing I did was profitable. The overhead bills kept coming. You know, this was growing pains. And I just learned the hard way that you got to keep control of your schedule. I don't care how big this client or how big this opportunity, how far you think it's going to, you know, forward your career and your reputation and your brand. You sometimes I think you just got to be a little bit more selfish. You got to over promise uh, a little bit to keep your schedule full. You got to take care of yourself. And I think that's, that was the hardest lesson that I learned. Uh, and that happened in, after being in business 10 years, uh, I learned that one. Um, so yeah, that, that, that hurt. I could still feel the pain of, of that winter because I, uh, uh, going through that winter without any work, I, I owed my vendors, uh, north of a hundred thousand dollars in debt. I didn't, um, <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to pay them off. I had no leads. I just knew that I had a good team and I had the equipment to get it done. I had a good reputation, but I just caught myself in the middle of winter when, you know, I'm, everybody's ready to just get back in their backyard and, and they're calling you know, the phone is not ringing. I'm just trying to be funny about it, but really the phone is not ringing. And so uh, I've got some vendors that I still don't do business with to this day because, you know, I, I, I was always honest up front, always answered my phone and told them, look, I just, I don't have the money I'm trying right now, but I'm like, I had maxed out credit cards to pay what I could maxed out my line of credit. Like, by the time I, that was done two years ago, I had found myself in probably uh, north of like $300,000 worth of debt I, I had accrued that winter or that year um, in a good econ- economy, mind you. So 
uh, you know, it can, it can happen. And, and thankfully knock on wood, um, we just got done paying all of it off this year. So we're, we're, we're going into winter right now with a little bit of money in the bank and, and, uh, have completely paid off all our debt. Good end to that story to where you guys are now. It did this, and I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through this, but obviously, uh, a great learning lesson. And thank you for sharing that story with our audience. Cause that that's hugely valuable. Did this, did this affect, obviously it affected the years after and everything, but did this affect how you viewed overhead expenses and, and how you invested into your business moving forward those next couple of years? Or, uh, you know, did you still kind of stick to the plan that you had envisioned for your business prior to this happening? I completely reinvented myself after that. I got rid of um, an operations manager. I restructured the way that foremen were then in charge of their jobs. I gave them more responsibility. I gave them all really significant raises and sat them down and said, all right, I got rid of our project manager or our operations manager and their eyes got big, their jaws dropped open. I said, I'm not replacing him. You guys are going to step up. I'll be damned if they did. And, um, you know, we, so my office manager and I, we found ways to reorganize things and, and put things in bins and really leaned on our PO system and, and just kind of use that as an opportunity to just hit a, a hard reset and, um, and really just kind of restructured and, and that got everybody's attention. And that, you know, that year I went from like 15 employees down to seven employees and, and we did the same amount in revenue the next year with half the staff. Uh, but we actually had some, some, some gross profit to work with. And, and then the following year, we just built on that momentum. And then again, this year we built on that momentum. Okay, Matt, I want to kind of stick on this for a little bit here because we had uh, Stanley genetic on the podcast and he talked about the exact same thing where he cut his business in half and still did the same, if not more revenue the next year. So what do you attribute that to? Do you attribute that to giving your foreman more uh, responsibility? Do you attribute that to the systems that you created within your business? Where, what do you attribute this to? All the above. Like it's, it's, there is no magic bullet. It's, it's all of it. Yeah, I would attribute it to giving them more responsibility, putting putting their attention on, on those numbers and giving them ownership on, on those hours and those projects and those budgets. Uh, I would attribute it to now just never stop selling, you know, like that's, you know, just keeping a full calendar. That's, that's our number one job here now is let's just keep a full calendar. Uh, I had to rope the team in again this week, just to say the same thing. We've been blessed with a, a really mild, we've only had one bad snow day so far. And now we're going into the end of November and like, wow, we're, we're working through all of our backlog to get us through winter, which is a good problem to have. But um, yeah, so we've, you know, it's definitely recalibrated us to keep in a really close eye on a lot of these things. And, you know, it, it, I hate to say it, but I think I had to go through the pain to know what the consequences are and feel how bad it is. These non-negotiables in your business and because now I know what the consequences are, you know, if I don't live by these, these habits. And so, cause I'm, I'm a relatively free spirited kind of guy. I, I, I love to just go with the flow and, and, 
and I'm trying to build a company that allows me more freedom to spend with my family. And, you know, so it's, it's hard to put that structure. So it's important to hire out those weaknesses. And so I've got some really solid women in this company that, that thrive on, on routine and, and, uh, are a lot more analytical than me. And so they, uh, they understand me. They, they, you know, I, I definitely feel their support and their love behind me and our mission of what we're trying to do. And I think that's an important key to, to our success here at this company now too. An incredible story, something difficult that you had to go through, but like you said, um, I, I'm sure this really does set your business up for a long-term success for, for longer term thinking here. Getting into the installation side of things, do you have any um, anything that you live by in terms of the installation on-site things that your company lives by? Oh man, our mini skids are are a godsend. They just fit through everything and go go everywhere. But man, that that would definitely be a question I would punt to my guys a little bit more. I I think it's you know I try and set them on you know. I look towards some of the, the other people that you've had on your show, like Richard Carroll and, and uh, Andy. Uh, those guys are the, the true wizards when it comes to this stuff. And so I try and learn from what they have and show my guys what, uh, what's out there, but then just put a budget. And I'm trying to build a, uh, an atmosphere for a company that allows them to have the tools that they need and necessary to put on their best work and to save their backs and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, and that, yeah, I would say I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, unfortunately. Oh, I like the way that you answered it in terms of that you, I mean, and you've, you've proven this time and time again throughout this interview that you've really empowered the people that you've put in charge into different spaces in your business to take control of those things. And, uh, you know, that, that's how you grow a business. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, and it takes the right person. But then, you know, if my guys are pretty used to coming to me with questions and then when I look at them and give them a question right back, they kind of have learned not to come to me with problems. They, they've, they've I've kind of taught them in a sense how to solve their own problems and only come to me. And that allows us to control the company with the budgets and, and the numbers. And now I can focus on building the company culture and just making sure we have a good environment and we're all getting along and we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing as opposed to just being stuck in the weeds of, of, uh, of those little things that allows me as the owner to kind of rise above and, and empower these guys to, you know, make these big decisions, which are business owner type questions that need to be answered. And so you know, if I'm empowering them with a budget and they know that they have this much to spend on small tools that they have to, they have to choose wisely. Now getting into the installation side of things, um, you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you had a customer that wanted a pond, uh, that they could swim in. So you went ahead and built yourself a pond that you could swim in so that you could then use what you, the knowledge that you gained there to then build them upon that they could swim in. Is that how it works? Not quite. I would say it was more so I built it for myself because I wanted one that we could go swimming in with the kids. And cause I, I wanted to be able, I'd seen some of these on the internet and I've been part of these aquascape builds and I wanted to have something that I could show people locally and expand their minds of 
what's even possible in a backyard. And I would, I, I've used, and so that big pond is my personal home and I've used that as a marketing tool. And I bring people over and I show them my backyard and, and it kind of just kind of makes them whole, rethink the whole yard as a whole. It's no longer a place where you just put a slab of patio, plop a barbecue on and, and make a rectangle of grass. It's like this, this backyard retreat where, you know, you're going to the middle of nowhere with these water features and you get the sound of the water and the fire. And all of a sudden it's like, where did I just go? Am I really in somebody's backyard? And so I feel like people can't really, they don't, they don't see it until they actually experience it. So that's, that's really helped me kind of take my business to the next level and, and start building these things for other people. Yeah, I love that mindset. And uh, as we come to the close of this interview, I've got two more questions for you here, Matt. You mentioned uh, Richard Arcia Door, Andy Mulder of uh, MMSWI. Hopefully I got that right, Andy. Uh, and uh, I just want to know any people that you look to for mentorship, whether that's online, offline, or inspiration on Instagram, or, or anybody that you really want to give a shout out here on the podcast. Sure. You know, I, I mean, offline, I'm, um, you know, I've, I've been heavily involved with the ALCC, which is the Associated Landscape Contractors of Colorado. I'm president past. And so I've gotten a lot of mentorship from uh, some of these guys that have started out similarly to me and have been in the, the, and been in the game for 40 years and have these beautiful $40 million a year companies. So that's, really helped expand my knowledge of, of what it's like. And I learned so much from them just from a business side of things. And so like there's Designscapes Colorado, there's, um, uh, you know, is the top one that comes to mind. Um, and then, uh, you know, Phil Stein, Phil, Phil, excuse me, Phil Steinhauer, sorry, Phil. Um, uh, you know, he's been a huge, huge inspiration to me as far as what he's been able to accomplish with his business, but then online, I would say, you know, Matt Daly with uh, Water and Earth. Um, you know, I love watching Richard and Andy. Um, you know, I, I, you know, even even Jack Kelly with with Imagine. He's, he, you know, he's just a creative man to the core, and just kind of his spirit is very infectious. Um, but uh, yeah, that you know, the list goes on. You know, I could really just name a whole bunch of people that I get that inspiration from. So Matt, you've obviously learned a lot since you started the business way back when. Um, but I want to ask you, what is that one thing that you know now that you wish you knew from the very beginning? If you could choose one thing that you've learned over these years that you knew, wish you knew from the very start, what would that be? Oh man, <laughs> don't sell to your own pocketbook. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, I would say... Man, when I first, you know, when I first started selling, or when I first started out uh, on my own, you know, I'm looking at my bank account and all the, you know, lack thereof that's in there, and it's like, what, three thousand dollars? Nobody has three thousand dollars to spend on an entire backyard, you know? Like that's that's ludicrous. Who has that kind of money, you know? And 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 just opening my eyes and expanding that there is so much money out there. We are in a luxury service and and treating that way and and now knowing that i'm selling three hundred thousand dollar backyard plus like i still can't afford that but you know it's nice to know that i'm no longer selling to what 
is in my bank account. And that just gave me the confidence to expand, to, you know, be an artist and to, you know, you know, get rid of this scarcity mindset and think in more abundance and that kind of stuff. Matt, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for giving your time uh, and, and providing this value to our audience. This is a great episode. Matt, where can our audience learn more about you? Find out what you're, what you've got going online. Where do you want to direct them to? Sure. Thanks, Mike. First, I want to say thanks for having me. I'm humbled that you wanted me to be a part of your show. And um, people can find me. I would say the best place to connect with me personally is on Instagram at uh, the underscore yardist. Um, that's my my personal brand where I'm most active. And then or uh, my company uh, at uh, Heiner, Heiner Outdoor Living. That's H-I-N-E-R. But um, that's uh, where a lot more of the pretty pictures are. So yeah, either one of those is a great place to find me.